Let's launch in a little bit. Um, let me start with a, a Bible reading. I will, I'll put this, uh, I'll keep referring to Colossians 3, 14 to 17, but I'll do a little bit of a longer reading from the beginning of the chapter uh, in my own semi-translation uh, here from the handout because it gives it a bit of context, which is always uh, good, uh, aid of understanding. So here we are, uh, Colossians 3, 1 to 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, your worldly impulses, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry on account of which the wrath of God is coming on the children of disobedience. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and abusive talk from your mouth. Stop lying to one another. Seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And over all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And, and be thankful. Uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whew, Paul, grand. So, he packs a lot in. And you'll kind of see, notice this, this tension. He's talking about the fact, you know, you have died with Christ. You've kind of been, your sinful self has been crucified your sins be nailed to the cross with Christ, you're kind of baptised into Christ, and you've, you've died to that old way of living and that old self, and that you're raised with him into the new life in Christ. 
So you need to keep on putting to death the bad things that are still in you because you're not yet what you will be when Christ appears in the last judgment and you're raised in glory. So there's a sort of you're here but you're not here, you're ne they're there but you're not really there. You're sort of ideally speaking <laughs> we are a new creation. Well yes but we're still struggling with the, the old man with the flesh, with the worldliness in which we live. Um, there's this there but not there kind of tension uh, in the rhetoric and a call to kind of live up to uh, the calling that you have in response of thankfulness to what Christ has already done for you and is going to do for you if you continue on living in faithfulness uh, to him rather than being disobedient uh, to that. Um, so uh, you may have also noticed some of uh, the themes that we, we come into talking about uh, the, uh, the thankfulness of the hearts, uh, teaching, wisdom, and so on, and, and doing things, whatever you do, uh, in word or deed, and so on. And of course, this is discipleship in 3D change for head and heart and hands, and you'll start seeing how this all fits into place. Um, let me start off with uh, this. I, I um, think of, of three basic sort of approaches to uh, living life. I'd say spirituality is a way of, a way of living life. Uh, for a short, easy definition. Let's look at how three different worldviews, different spiritualities, would answer these three basic questions that I think everyone sort of has about how to live life, what we're doing here, and so on. So if we have the, the, the questions, uh, what am I? Um, what am I going to be? Um, and what, what governs or determines my journey from one to the other? You know, how do I get where I'm going from where I am? These are good, important questions to ask about one's life. Uh, and different spiritualities have overlapping but ultimately distinct answers uh, to these questions. So uh, a, a naturalist, the materialist, uh, someone like Richard Dawkins, for example, his um, new book, Outgrowing God, was just out a fortnight ago and I'm beavering away from my publisher at the moment, writing a response book to his book, uh, which I have to try and get in by Easter so we can publish it this year. Uh, so a naturalist like Dawkins would uh, answer these questions something like this, basically, uh, what am I? Um, I'm an animal. I'm a differently evolved from other animals animal. Uh, maybe I'm an animal who has rationality uh, and the ability to understand the universe through science, something like this, you know. Uh, so what am I? I'm an animal. What am I going to be? Dead. Uh, what governs my journey from one to the other? Ultimately, entropy. <laughs> uh, heat, energy dissipates over time. Uh, we are fighting against entropy. Uh, every time we do the dusting or the washing or feed ourselves uh, and ultimately we will lose and humanity will lose uh, in the heat death of the universe. Everything will stop. 
the pantheists, the, the sort of Eastern kind of worldviews that sort of identify the world with God, they're kind of different ways of looking at the same thing and talking about the same thing. Now, ultimately, there is only the one of which we're all part, that kind of pantheistic, Easternish kind of worldview. What am I? The key thing they would kind of say is, well, you're deluded. You know, the Buddhists would say, you're, you're, you're deluded. You need to realise that you're actually part of the one uh, in order to escape the, the cycle of suffering and so on. So what am I? I'm deluded. What am I going to be? Well, through the cycle of, take the cycle of karma, uh, you will eventually be one with the one. You will eventually not be. There won't really be a you because the, the you-ness of you is an illusion. Uh, so again, you won't be, really, in that individual sense. And what governs my journey from one to the other? The cycle of, of karma. Basically, your, your deeds in one life influence how you're reincarnated in the next one. And you might take longer or shorter routes to, car to uh, karma, but that's where you, uh, the, the sort of uh, what governs your, your destiny to oneness with the whole. Uh, a Christian theist, Christian believer in God, uh, what am I? Um, a forgiven sinner and disciple of Jesus, the Son of God, the Saviour, etc. What am I going to be? I'm going to be a fully matured child of God, uh, living in a resurrected, spirit-dominated world, in a, with my resurrected, spirit-dominated body. Uh, what governs my journey from one to the other? Um, the virtuous spiritual formation process of putting on Christ. Paul talks about put on Christ. What? It's a process of discipleship and sanctification here and now, which will only ultimately meet its full flourishing and, uh, and victory when Christ appears in glory and you're raised in, in glory with him, uh, as Paul says in that passage we looked at. I would hazard that in general today's church does not talk about discipleship and spiritual formation enough or deeply enough. We are the happy exception to this general rule, I think. Christian uh, philosopher Dallas Willard died a couple of years ago now, but uh, wrote some very interesting things about discipleship and spiritual formation. That's one of his main areas of thinking. And I think he sums this up quite nicely. And remember, do ask any questions if I'm not being clear about anything. And he talks about that sort of historically as, as so-called liberal theology, uh, began to degenerate into a mild form of social ethics. Uh, so Christianity sort of under liberal theology just came, became a sort of a way of talking about humanist values and being nice to people. Yeah. Uh, the, the fundamentalist stroke evangelical movement kind of reacting against that liberal theology which e emphasised doing nice things 
uh, came to stress the notion that if you believe the right things, we've got to ho hold on to the right Christian beliefs because that's what's being discarded by the liberals. Yeah? If you believe the right things, it will get you into heaven. Uh, and the sort of gospel message, in a sense, became reduced to, here's what you have to believe in order to get into heaven when you die. That's the gospel. Uh, and that was a sort of an overreaction against the liberal denigration of truly Christian ideas about the world. Uh, so in, a, in an effort to preserve the faith, we came to emphasise that what really matters is what you, you profess. And this left believers very little help on how to actually enter into the life that Jesus himself modelled and taught. See, it's about, it's like sign on the dotted line saying, yes, I believe the right things. But the church sort of in that process of overcompensating kind of seemed to largely give up on actually thinking about, well, how do we actually live the Christian life? Because that became too, too much sort of associated uh, and sort of dismissed by association with, oh, you know, you're getting all liberal and kind of like, how do you do good things? That's not the gospel. Yeah. But faith in Christ is, is holistic, is, is rounded. Faith isn't about right belief so much as it is about right allegiance uh, and or trust. This, this word that we use, faith, um, again, the way language is used, I mean, we're often translating in the New Testament the, the Greek word pistis, uh, which was the spirit of good faith that escaped from Pandora's box in the, in the myth of Pandora's box. You know, this Greek myth about don't, don't look in the box and she can't resist and she looks in the box and various things escape from the box, including Pistis, the spirit of good faith. Um, faithfulness to someone in relationship. You know, uh, being faithful to your husband and wife. Uh, so allegiance, uh, which is matter both of the head and the heart, um, and is inevitably entangled with your behaviour. So it's holistic. Um, John Cottingham, you've seen this very nice little series of books, I think it's SBCK are doing, that. basically little essays, nicely presented. Um, called uh, A Little Book of Guidance, and a whole series they're bringing out. And the um, uh, British Christian philosopher John Cottingham did this one on how can I believe. And uh, I like this. So here's his quote. He says, um, thinking about sort of spirituality, what, what practical steps can we take to orientate our lives so as to respond to the call of the sacred? to grow in knowledge and love of the good. Says, we learn by doing, by adopting the frameworks of spiritual practice that have come down to us. The point is that we, we cannot make progress just by an act of will. 
uh, like however much we just sort of say to ourselves, okay, I, I'm going to be a good person tomorrow. <laughs> I, I'm going to try, I'm really going to try to be good tomorrow. And I <laughs> we'll find that doesn't really work. Yeah. Uh, we can't make progress just by an act of will, however worthy, just as in the case of a school child or an athlete or a musician, what is eventually achieved will depend in large part on, on systematic habituation, um, doing things repeatedly, <laughs> uh, and careful training. Um, Becoming a religious believer will not be an isolated mental act, but a long process of growth. We talked earlier, didn't we, about it not being just a tick box exercise, but a process. Um, there's a lot of wisdom uh, in that. So if we come back to uh, Paul and Colossians, um, over uh, all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, okay, let's highlight this. Look at this. And be thankful, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Reminds me very much of Rome, Paul writes in Romans 12, 1-2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, so out of a sort of thankful response of your heart to what God's done for you, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices so offer your embodied existence uh, as living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God for this is the reasonable way for you to worship the reasonable way for you to worship do not be conformed to this world in that sense of the Pauline sense of the world against the way God wants to do things, uh, but continuously process, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. You know, Paul doesn't say be transformed by engaging in really exciting worship experiences. He's not denigrating that, but that's not the root of it. Um, be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may be able to determine what God's will is, what is proper, pleasing, and perfect. So in Pauline thought, um, the Greek word metanoia, uh, repentance, transformation of mind, change your mind, metanoia, repent, leads to in another famous Greek word, metamorphosis, change of form, change of the kind of thing that you are, the kind of life that you live. So Alistair McGrath, uh, in his a little book on mere discipleship, which I recommend, 
says that Christian discipleship is about a conscious and committed decision to be followers of Jesus Christ in every way possible, including the way we think, love, and act. And you start noticing these things start coming up in threes. <laughs> Why choose to follow Jesus? If you think about becoming a Christian in, in those terms, I mean, there are a lot of different answers one might give. And in the testimonies you shared at the beginning, there are a lot of sort of different answers, differences and commonalities in why you've chosen to to follow Christ. Um, but Dallard Willard gives an answer that I think is interesting because it's, it's not really the kind of answer you hear shared very much, but I think it's an important one. Uh, it's kind of a startling answer, and then I think when you think about it more, it's kind of startling that it is a startling answer. <laughs> so he says, the, the life and words that Jesus brought into the world came in the form of information and reality. He and his early associates overwhel overwhelmed the ancient world because they brought into it a stream of life at its deepest, along with the best information possible on the most important matters. So if I'm answering the question like who am I going to follow who's going to be this sort of the question someone from the east would 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 ask is who's going to be my guru <laughs> who am I going to discipleship disciple myself to who am I going to be an intern of um, am I going to go on the apprentice so I can work with Lord Sugar uh, please don't um, or shall I become an intern of Jesus? You know, well, okay, uh, who is it who has the best information possible on the most important matters and really lives out life in its sort of richest, deepest way? Find me a better candidate <laughs> for following than Jesus. The, the early Christians didn't, didn't call themselves Christians. That was a name invented by the pagans um, relatively early on. But um, the Christians in, in the first generation of Christians described themselves as followers of the way. Uh, this is the, the earliest self-descriptor that... Uh, they use. So you can find this in Acts 11.26 and Acts 22.4, this self-description as we follow the way. Um, Christianity is a way of life, a spirituality that's centred upon following Jesus Christ, who is, of course, as he says in, in John 14.6, I, mean, I am the way the truth and the life. Uh, I am the way to live in relationship with God. I am the truth about God expressing itself in personal form to you. I am the life of God available to you, if you trust me. Uh, so Christians said, oh, yeah, I follow the way. 
and the pagans said, ah, oh, you Christians, you, you Messiah slaves, literally. <laughs> and then the Christians said, yeah, yeah, we are Messiah slaves. That's a jolly good name. Thanks. We'll have that, you know, <laughs> and, and claimed it for themselves. Uh, but Christian identity stems from this ongoing commitment to a Christ-centred spirituality or way of living. Uh, and that involves moving, albeit gradually and with inevitable ups and downs, uh, from what you are to what you are meant to be in Christ. Uh, references you can go to here, Romans 6.23, Galatians 2.17, 2 Timothy 1.1. I'm sure there must be more. Uh, so, yeah, just talking about the way in which Christians describe themselves as followers of the way, originally. Linking that to Jesus about the way, the truth and the life and, and uh, spirituality is a way of life in discipleship to Christ. Yeah. So, you know, when Christ, uh, for example, in Matthew eleven twenty nine talks about uh, place my yoke on you and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble and you'll find rest for your souls. Uh, salvation, this is back to that whole sort of liberal evangelical thing that Dallas Willard was talking about. Salvation is by faith, by trust and allegiance, not works. Uh, I did a talk the other week, you can find on my podcast about the Protestant Reformation sparked by Martin Luther's rediscovery and emphasis upon this. But it is a faith that leads to works organically, that, that produces what theologians call sanctification, becoming Christ-like. Um, so Mark 8, 34, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must disown himself and take up his cross and follow me. So that's very much about doing things. Uh, and there are lots of, of passages that talk about you know, doing my father's work. But of course, when you look at it in context, the work that Jesus is talking about there is believing in the son <laughs> and following him and therefore trying to adopt the way of life that he's showing you, leading you in, which involves doing things. So you can't really separate faith and works. It's just that you know, in the Pauline sense, in the Martin Luther Protestant Reformation sense, it's noticing that you're not earning your salvation, earning your ticket into eternal life here and the way that that flourishes in eternity and so on, you're not earning your way through doing enough good works. You plug into Christ by adopting trust and allegiance to, towards him. A trust and allegiance, that inevitably means you're going to try and follow him and, and you end up doing things in a certain way, <laughs> fallibly. <laughs> Here and now. So Peter Kreeft, uh, Peter Kreft is a Catholic philosopher from Boston College in the States. Uh, 
Um, but this is an uh, extract from an article of his uh, on justification by faith. And he says uh, this, he says, in Christian liberty, Martin Luther explains that after the great liberation about salvation by faith, that we are saved by faith in Christ's works, not by our works, comes a great liberation about works. They need not be done slavishly, sort of pharisaically, to buy our way into heaven, to pile up merits or brownie points with gods. You know, I haven't got my halo yet, I need a few more brownie points. But those good works can be done freely and spontaneously and naturally out of gratitude to God. Not to get to heaven, but because heaven has already gotten to us. That's a great turn of phrase. Not to get to heaven, but because heaven has already gotten to us. Thus they can be done, these good works can be done for the sake of our neighbour, not for our own sake, to purchase salvation. Uh, He's agreeing uh, with that. Uh, And then he goes on to argue that the uh, the difference between Luther and the Catholic Church over salvation was basically a misunderstanding because Luther had been struck by the way Paul talks about you're saved by faith, uh, not by the law, following the works of the law, whereas the Catholic Church's language was shaped more, more in line with the, like the letter of James, where James will say, you know, can faith without works save you? Can such faith, such faith without works is dead? Abraham was saved by works, right? But of course, James means only the, the kind of faith that saves you is a living faith, allegiance, trust in Christ, which organically leads you to act in a certain way and, and that way of acting reflects your Pauline faith um, so Abraham was saved by works but not because he did something that was good enough to earn his salvation but because he did something that was an organic expression of trust in and allegiance to God <laughs> he took God at his word and, and stepped out in faith on it. Um, uh, because you can't really separate, as we say, faith and works. Um, uh, but if you then read on in, in, in James, of course he goes on to talk very specifically about how um, grace covers over sin and so on. <laughs> I think it's in uh, right at the beginning, first couple of first chapter or two of James. Let me get my uh, Bible up. Yeah, because uh, Martin Luther really didn't like the the letter of James because of this. He called it an epistle of straw. Uh, 
and uh, but it's because they're kind of using the language slightly differently it's uh, here we go my ESV the wonders of technology uh, James 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 one Okay, yeah, James 2 from verse 14 is the section uninherently labelled faith without works is dead. Uh, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can such faith and I'm doing air marks here for people on the recording because they didn't have quotation marks or in Greek. So when they're kind of using things in, you have to get it from context. Can such faith save him? Um, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? Okay. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? That's, that's no good at all. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's obviously not belief <laughs> uh, that's, that's key here. Uh, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. You know, he didn't just say, yeah, I, I believe you, God. I believe you will bless the world, even though you've asked me to sacrifice my son. I'm sure you can square that. Yeah, I believe you can square that circle. It's, I don't know how you're going to do that. But, you know, I believe it, but I'm not actually going to follow through. And Well, what sort of belief would that be? It's the fact that he attempts to follow through that shows that he's really believing. He's really pissed at trusting. He really has allegiance and faith and so on. Yeah. Um, you see that faith was active along with his works. Uh, faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So you see, James both says Abraham was saved by works and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. <laughs> so you can't, you know, it would just be a really bad reading of James to think that he is contradicting the idea of salvation by faith in the way that Paul expresses it. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by faith, by works, and not by faith alone. But again, if we were translating consistently, you know, um, you believe, well, the demons believe, you, you, uh, same term. Um, and in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out uh, the other way. 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Um, bum, bum, bum. I'm trying to find the um, other bit. Uh, talking about the tongue. Uh, oh, there we go. Oh, gosh. Uh, previous chapter. How do, I, how do I do previous chapter in this? Uh, well, the stuff, James. <laughs> <laughs> James 5. There we go. Uh, right, so yeah, James 5.19... Uh, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover uh, a multitude of sins. Uh, that's not necessarily what I'm thinking of. Uh, um, vessel sins. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to track down. I'm going to spend too much time trying to track down a particular verse that I'm half remembering. But anyway, you get the, uh, the general gist that they are, when you read them in context, carefully, compatible. And, and both, clearly, James and Paul talk about faith in this holistic um, discipleship kind of a way. Um, Paul certainly wouldn't just say, well, if you've got faith, you can just go and, go and sin, you'll be forgiven, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. Okay, that's kind of <laughs> the trouble he was having with some people who've invited you in, in the Corinthian letters, for example. But, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, okay. So the philosopher uh, Gordon Graham brings an in important emphasis here when he, he notes that whereas the devout Jew tries to live by the law, this is what sort of Paul, having been a Pharisee among Pharisees, was uh, uh, keen to, uh, to write against. He tries to live by the law. And the devout Muslim strives to follow the teaching of the prophet. And, you know, again, very much follow the rules. Do the praying five times a day uh, in the right prescribed way, etc. The disciple of Christ aims at something more. A mystical unity or being one with him. This implies a willingness to sacrifice self for life in Christ. Um, the relationship between a Christian and Jesus is not the same as the relationship between a Muslim and Muhammad. <laughs> okay? Or between a Jew and Moses. So like, okay, they're the person who's telling me the rules to follow and I try and follow their rules. Um, it's closer and more intimate than that. A willingness to sacrifice self for life in Christ. So Paul, back to Paul, describes the way of Christian spirituality as a, a participation in Christ's death and resurrection. And again, you see how it relates to the language we had from the, the fuller reading of, of Colossians um, about you've died with him, you're raised with him, etc. Big Pauline theme. 
So Romans 6, 3 to 23. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. He died as a, as a sacrifice. Uh, and in the Jewish sacrificial uh, system, you, um, the priest prays over the animal that, of course, God has ultimately provided. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and so on. You give the animal to the priest, the priest prays over it, you identify with the animal. Uh, there's an identification between Israel and the, the, the flocks of Israel and so on. Um, and that the animal is killed as a sacrifice. Um, you identify with the sacrifice. Um, you die to sin once for all, a one, one time only sacrifice. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, here's, again, Paul walking that line between here and not there yet. Um, saying, you know, you've been united with him in a death like his, but that means you have to consider yourself dead to sin. So he's admitting there that you're not. I know you're not dead to sin. Uh, James, if anyone says he has no sin, he lies. <laughs> um, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Just as you once presented your members, members of your body, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For the wages of sin is death. What you reap from sin is alienation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and that means the life you have now in him. This is eternal life, says Jesus in John's Gospel, that they know you and the Christ that you sent. Uh, so this, this sort of spiritual communion where you are identifying yourself with Christ as the sacrifice, you're identifying your sinful self with the sacrifice that is destroyed. Um, you, know, you kind of have to appropriate and unpack uh, this communal new covenant relationship of salvation and sanctification. Remember Jesus talking about this is the Last Supper, this is a new covenant in my blood. And you go back to the Old Testament and you see the covenant with Abraham. Again, in, in the cultural terms of the day, the covenant being sort of inaugurated and ratified by a sacrifice. Um, 
by, by blood. And Christ inaugurates a, a new covenant, a new relationship between God and people in his blood. Uh, so we have this relationship of salvation and sanctification or spiritual renewal, rene renovation, which God offers in Christ to all humans. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4, 7, Hebrews 11, 39, 40. Are we going okay? Are we getting... Have another chocolate. Keep the, uh, the sugar flowing. No, please do. Excellent idea. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of repeating a lot of the same ideas from some different angles and trying to tie it into the overall sort of biblical storyline. Just to try to jog us into thinking in a slightly new, different way about these things. Would you like one? I would, yes. That's an excellent idea. <laughs> Ooh. That one's mine. <laughs> okay, thank you, bless you. Ta. Hi. Tea orders? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Milk. Mm. Do we have milk? Yes. Oh, good. Mm. Mm. I'll wait for your return. thinking about atonement basically um, Tim Bain uh, Greg Restle, a couple of philosophers talking about the atonement saying there's a stream of Pauline thought in which the atonement does not merely adjust our moral standing before God, it's sort of deeper than that uh, if we respond to it positively it, it inaugurates a change in the kind of beings that we are this, this change in the way that we're living is so fundamental that it's like we, as Paul says, we've become a new creation. Um, notice God often, yes. Uh, atonement. So, uh, literalistically, at one moment, think of it this way, making at making us at one with God, sort of bringing us into a peaceful, harmonious relationship with God, um, despite our sin. So, sort of the the dealing with our sinfulness getting in the way of that relationship. 
Yeah. Great. Good. Uh, so God will <coughs> sometimes change change someone's name. So um, you see that in the Old Testament, see that in the New Year, Saul Paul, changing to Paul or um, sorry. Yes, that's right, Simon Peter, um, uh, uh, Cephas in Greek. Um, so, um, I'm not going to get into the theology of Genesis and the creation story. Um, <laughs> uh, changing the kind of thing you are by um, kind of giving you almost giving you a new goal or function, giving you a new way of living, uh, a new purpose in life, calling you to a new spirituality and so on. Um, that's what we're called to in this identification with the sacrifice of Christ in the atonement. We're, we're kind of saying to God, yes, I want you to take away all of my sin and deal with that pay the you personally are paying the price of my rejection of you in order to forgive me this is at least how i find it helpful to, to think about the atonement in, in the experiential terms of what is it to forgive someone it's not to excuse them to excuse them and say oh no, it wasn't really your fault you couldn't help it because xyz to forgive them is to say, it really was your fault. You really have done something wrong to me. And, and God is the only one wronged in all of our sins. That's why Jesus can say, you know, your sins are forgiven. Um, yes, I'm acknowledging that you have sinned against me, have hurt me. But I value having a loving relationship with you so much that I am prepared to shoulder that hurt and pain out of the way, to absorb that myself and not let it get in the way. If you want that relationship, you can have it. <laughs> uh, us having that relationship involves me suffering your sin um, and at least a way or maybe a helpful way of looking at what's going on on the cross is God expressing that in a very visceral sort of mythopoetical kind of way to us I am prepared to suffer your sin so that we can know one another if you want <laughs> and when we identify with Christ and say yeah take my sin suffer that and I want to identify with the Christ who is vindicated by the fact that he's raised from that apparently um, you know uh, criminal death for blasphemy in, in Jewish terms um, they are, that God has actually said, no, th this, this Christ is the Messiah. He was the way, the truth, and the life. Say, so, uh, well, okay, I want to be uh, with you, in you. Um, and you in me, through your spirit. It's this very 
Thank you very much. Intimate, close association, not just a, yeah, I'm going to try and do what you say. <laughs> Lovely. So uh, here's a couple of quotes from an atheist philosopher that I find really helpful here. And I love quoting atheists when they're helpful, because sometimes they are, and we should admit that. Yeah? They're not wrong about everything. They have good <laughs> thoughts sometimes, yeah? <laughs> Even St. Paul quotes pagan poets in uh, his speech to the Areopagus in, in uh, Acts 17. So, uh, this is uh, by a uh, French, he must be with a name like this, André Comte Sponville, uh, his book, uh, The Book of Atheist Spirituality. Uh, he says, this. He says, in uh, monotheistic cultures, cultures that believe in the sort of Abrahamic kind of God, people are bound together, horizontally so to speak, by the fact that all of them feel bound to God, vertically. And that's why I've put this, sort of the warp and the, the woof of the, the weaving here, with the, the two directions, and then you get a strong material from it and that that way in which you talked earlier about the the community feeling in the church that you started going to and sort of sensing there's what is this community thing here what's at the heart of that that's kind of interesting and intriguing and here's Constable sort of laying it out so it's like the warp and the woof of the religious material the community of believers is as powerful as this double bond is strong. For it is communion that creates the community. It's communion that creates the community. They co-together, co they commune, they are together with one another by the fact that they are all together in the relationship with the God. We commune with one another in Christ. What do we say in the communion service when we celebrate the Last Supper? We are all one body because we all eat one bread. The bread representing the body of Christ, etc. So, uh, and here's a, a Norwegian uh, flag cake. You can tell why I'm doing this talk next. Um, he goes on, he says, to commune is to share without dividing. To share but without dividing. This may sound paradoxical. Where material goods are concerned, it is indeed impossible. People cannot commune in a cake, for instance, because the only way to share it is to divide it. Right? But in a family or a group of friends, people can commune in the pleasure they take in eating a delicious cake together. All share the same delectation, but without having to divide it up. Indeed, your birthday party sharing of uh, that birthday party is more enjoyable the more people you have to commune in it <laughs> you might say uh, the, the joy is increased by the number of people in, uh, communing uh, together uh, in it and i think that is just re really helpful couple of, of images about 
communion that really resonate with the, the Christian view of things. So Christians commune in Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. Uh, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Um, and ultimately, of course, that's talking about we're, we're all partaking in the one once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Let me pause, pause there and just see if you have any thoughts or questions as I sip my tea. It's, it's just a helpful illustration. Yeah. It does. Yeah. And the other, just another thing on, and I haven't got on the slide, but another th thought I'm reminded of about communion in, in the, the importance in the ancient world of table fellowship. Right. I studied um, classical civ at A-level. We read the epic poetry of Homer and, and so on. I did a sermon a few months ago in, in church where I referenced this because I was talking about um, Hebrews and the, the verse about hospitality in Hebrews. If you go on my podcast, you'll find a fairly recent sermon on hospitality where I talk about this and the way in which in Homer's poems, um, because they didn't really have this infrastructure of uh, um, safe, policed routes of, of travel and, and inns that were cheap and safe to stay at and so on. People would just turn up at, at people's door and be extended hospitality. Um, so, uh, you know, Odysseus's son Telemachus turns up somewhere and they say, come in, come in, have a meal, share with us break bread with us and then you can tell us all about yourself uh, and that was the standard way of doing things because you don't want to prejudice yourself against giving them hospitality by finding out that you know they're a friend of an enemy of yours or something because you don't want reciprocally that to happen to you when you're traveling abroad <laughs> so you, ha you have this sort of packs of okay table fellowship if you know anything about game of thrones and the uh, the red wedding in the game of thrones it's like but they broke bread and salt with one another and then they went back on that sort of that was like a foundation of civilization yeah um and to share table fellowship with someone is to basically say with them you are under my protection now uh, until you need to go on your way and i will hear what your obviously your mission must be urgent because why would you venture away from the safety of home into the dangers of the world unless you had an urgent thing that you had to be doing so i will aid you in doing that to the best of my ability and you know if i ever need a favor in return <laughs> uh, and so on and these relationships between families and so on in the ancient world were kind of established in this way so if you think of, of table fellowship in that way and look at what you know, the table fellowship of Jesus, and particularly his inauguration of the Last Supper, where as 
God incarnate, incarnate in flesh, chili con carne in the flesh, <laughs> God incarnate, he's, he's saying to us, I invite you to share table fellowship with me, come under my protection, and I will aid you in your mission, <laughs> etc. So, um, here's a provocative question. What's the point of the Bible? What's the point of the Bible? I mean, the Bible's not a sufficient or a necessary condition for salvation. You don't need the Bible in order to be saved. Plenty of first century people heard the gospel and became followers of Jesus before any of the New Testament was written. Right? So, you can be a Christian without the Bible. Clearly, um, people were. Um, what's necessary here is our response to a particular true story about God's relationship with humanity. Uh, a story that reaches its, its fulcrum point in the Gospel of Jesus. And that said, of course, uh, the Bible helps us to gain access to and to locate ourselves within that story in the proper way. It, it helps bring us into that story. Um, still, in, in that oral culture of the time, that would have been done for most people more by people telling them the story than by them reading it for themselves. So, I mean, research on uh, oral storytelling in oral cultures and so on, so on shows this. You generally have the idea of uh, the so-called the trade, the person whose job is to tell that particular story to the community, and they have a certain degree of flexibility in how they tell the story. They can kind of shape it to their audience a bit and the occasion and so on, but they've got to get the essential points right all the time and if they stray from the essentials that the community because they know the story as well knows they will correct them say that's not how the story goes you know if i tell you the story of goldilocks and three bears right now from memory i'm sure i could tell you the story about the three bears who um, make their supper uh, of porridge and it's a bit, you know, hot, so they go out for a walk to let it cool off for a bit before they come back. And in the meantime, Goldilocks, who's lost in the forest, stumbles across their house and finds the door open and goes in and sits down at the table because she's really hungry now, having been lost wandering in the forest, and eats the first bowl and, and, and takes a spoonful of it. Oh, oh, it's, that's much too hot. So she moves down the table to the next next, next bowl and she takes a spoonful of it and goes, oh, oh, it's, oh, that's horrible. It's really cold, that one, you know. Maybe that one was served out first. So she goes on to the last bowl and she takes it and it's just right. And then the etc etc now you're all going yeah that's the story of Goldilocks and the three bears but I bet you have never heard it told in those specific words before because I just made that up off the top of my head <laughs> and a lot of the details of the story I just made up 
um, but I know the story. And researchers think that when you're reading the, the gospel stories, you're probably reading a written snapshot, as it were, of the way in which the gospel would have been orally communicated within the early church. Um, and if you compare, when you compare particularly the so-called synoptic gospels with one another, you'll notice very readily the differences between them, even when they're telling the same story. They will not use the identical words in telling the story, and some of the peripheral details might be a bit different, and you might think, oh, you know, are those stories compatible with one another or whatever, but the original readers or hearers of those stories would have all said, oh, what are you getting hung up about? He's just told the story of God Locks and the Three Bears. He just told the story about Jesus healing the paralytic. He told it accurately. He didn't use exactly the same words that Mark uses when he, or, but that's not the point. Um, anyway, that's uh, an interesting diversion that we got into. Uh, so let's come back <laughs> to what we're meant to be thinking about. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright. Uh, so the Bible is not simply an authoritative description of a saving plan, uh, as though it was uh, an aerial photograph of a particular piece of landscape. It's more like the guide who takes you round the landscape and shows you how you can enjoy it to the full. The Bible does what God wants it to do when through the power of the Spirit it enables people to believe in Jesus, to follow him, to share the work of the kingdom by loving him with heart, mind and strength. So often when we talk about you know, doctrines of the authority of the Bible and what we mean by theories about you know, the inerrancy and or infallibility of scripture and so on, we do a lot of talking about the truth value of statements within the Bible and we're kind of focusing on is the Bible true when it states X, Y or Z? Uh, but there's that, that sort of, you know, an interesting, important discussion but also that kind of, again, it slightly misses some of the woods, at least for the trees because the Bible is meant to do something to us. <laughs> um, it is an authoritative guide to the landscape, not just a photograph or a sort of uh, scientific scale model of the landscape, uh, as it were. I think that's an interesting point. So, um, oh, can I pronounce this properly? Douglas Grootheis, American Christian philosopher, says Christianity makes claims on the entire personality Accepting it as true is not a matter of mere intellectual assent, but of embarking on a whole new venture in life. Um, that heart of that Christian adventure is this, this Christ-centric, Christocentric relationship with God that enables our spiritual development through the process of putting on Christ, Romans 13, 14. So Rowan Williams, who's an um, Anglican bishop, uh, so spirituality for the Christian is shorthand for life in the spirit, for, for staying alive in Christ. Or Paul Gooch explaining that Christians embrace and inhabit a way of life 
within a set of divine and human relationships characterized by faith and hope and love. So if we come back to our, I think we'll come back to that after lunch because we're just coming up to it now and that would be probably the better place to break. But after lunch we'll come back to our Corinthians verse and start unpacking in more detail those these 3D-ness, these threes we've talked about you know, faith, hope and love and head and heart and hands and so on and how this all kind of links together and how we can get from that kind of theoretical the theologizing that we've been doing to a very practical kind of application. Um, philosophy and theology is eminently practical and it's kind of a little bit like faith without works is dead. Theology without practice is <laughs> praxis is um, not doing the job that it's meant to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so back to Colossians three. Uh, we've just been talking about um, Paul Gooch talking about uh, the Christian way of life. Uh, within a set of divine and human relationships, that you know, warp and woof that we were talking about, characterised by faith, hope and love, and pointing out, look, here's another one of those threes. These threes keep popping up. Um, so here's uh, back to Colossians 3. Um, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That relates to the Christian virtue of hope. Um, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This is talking about our faith as a virtue. And uh, with thankfulness in your hearts to God relates obviously back to hope. And then we have um, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. And uh, that means do it in his character, as his representative, uh, in the name of. Uh, and that's love. Um, so we have uh, the cardinal Christian virtues of faith, hope and love, which translate to our, our assumptions and beliefs our, in our heads, our attitudes of our hearts, our um, not we often in our culture tend to think about talk about hearts in relation to kind of feeling things and that's certainly there but also our attitude our committing to things and then actions what we do in word or deed do everything in the name of the lord and our assumptions attitudes and actions you now see my Baptist background poking through three sermon points beginning with the same letter. Um, <laughs> I would say this is an excellent general definition of what a spirituality is. It is the combination of your assumptions, attitudes leading to your actions. A spirituality, whether that's a Christian spirituality or a Muslim spirituality or a Buddhist spirituality or a New Age spirituality or an atheist spirituality etc. Uh, aims to be, with all of it succeeds, but aims to be a virtuous 
integrative way of relating to reality, a way of life, way of relating to ourselves, relating to each other, to the world around us, to whatever we think of as ultimate reality. And we do that via our worldview assumptions, including our beliefs, our attitudes, our feelings, our commitments, and our actions. Or if you want a different trilogy of words, spirituality is the combination of your head and hearts and hands. Um, this is not a novel idea of mine. Um, Jesus seems to have cottoned on to this because he knew his Old Testament. Um, so, uh, you know, um, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Uh, well, it's love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. That's for the version in Mark 12.30 and he is referencing back to Deuteronomy 6.5 here. I think this is just the way that we are constructed by God as spiritual beings. This is how we work. This is why these categories of three kind of keep coming up. Uh, and this threeness relates to various different sets of concepts that all cluster around this sort of threeness of how we're built. So uh, Alistair McGrath again, who we quoted earlier, this time from his book The Passionate Intellect. He says, we cannot allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he does not also guide our thinking. The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in our faith. We impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties. Remember, we started out with that Dallas Willard quote really about sort of impoverishing the gospel in reaction to liberal theology, which is itself an impoverishment of the gospel. Uh, we are thus called upon to demonstrate and embody the truth and beauty and goodness of faith. Um, which makes me reflect that, the, you know, being a, a Christian apologist or being involved in persuasive evangelism, um, which is the only sort of evangelism worth engaging in, because you don't want to engage in unpersuasive evangelism, um, it is a challenge to our own spirituality. <laughs> You know, it's not about um, beating the other person with your arguments. It's not like <laughs> pointing the finger. You know, if you point the finger, three fingers point back at you kind of thing. Um, we are jointly, as uh, humans, in uh, pursuit, hopefully, of the, uh, the true, the good, and the beautiful. So there's another three, true, good, beautiful. So I've um, had a long ongoing project uh, about uh, spirituality uh, in 3D, about head, hearts and hands, and using that as a sort of template to think about various areas of things from apologetics. And I wrote a paper called Apologetics in 3D, and I just did this um, review uh, article which I'll send on to you. Um, and applying it to thinking about media, thinking about discipleship and actually you can see there's a big overlap really between apologetics and discipleship but that's just looking at it from the inside or the outside <laughs> but it's uh, pretty much the same thing um, so we end up with this last now we're starting to get a, a little table with 
sets of three and how they kind of match up and link up together. Uh, apologetics is a, a holistic approach. It begins with this, this generic biblical account of spirituality about relating to reality by our head, heart and hands and then we get these these three components of what it is to have a spiritual life which are judged by these these transcendental standards of truth and beauty and goodness standards that apply across all of the different um, subject areas within a university they transcend the boundaries between subjects um, and we communicate these things through the, the three classical elements of, of rhetoric that the ancient Greeks talked about and that for see Paul talks about um, logos and pathos and ethos Aristotle talked about these things um, so I end up saying something like apologetics is the is the art of persuasively advocating a Christian spirituality uh, through the responsible use of rhetoric as being objectively beautiful, good and true, reasonable. It's a very sort of broad encompassing concept of what you're trying to share uh, with people, what you're inviting people to engage in. Uh, it includes but is much more than merely an intellectual exercise. Um, So again, um, Paul in Philippians 4.8 talks about whatever uh, is true, whatever is noble, right, or pure, goodness, whatever is admirable, what's beautiful, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Um, the classical and biblical tradition is... Uh, takes an objective view of these three transcendent values. Um, church has tended historically to do a much better job of holding on to the, the, the objectivity of truth and goodness than of beauty. And our culture, um, e even despite you know, postmodernism and so on, tends to hold on to at least scientifically knowable truth as a real thing, but then uh, tends to look down upon any notion of objective right and wrong or beauty. You know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, your, your personal subjective capacity to appreciate the beauty of something is relative to you, subjective to you, <laughs> but the beauty of the thing that you can come to appreciate, uh, classically, biblically, is the beauty of the thing. <laughs> um, it is what is admirable or praiseworthy, not that you happen to admire or to praise. Um, and basically, any argument that you try to give for saying that beauty is just relative and subjective and purely dependent upon your culture or your subjective whims or how you want to define it in law or whatever, you could also apply to, to, to moral values. Um, 
they they seem to stand and fall together indeed they all stand and fall together because when you're saying something really is admirable is beautiful what you're really saying is it's true that it is objectively good for you to appreciate it it's good for you to appreciate it because it has things that are worthy of appreciation and it's true that it is good that it is worthy of appreciation <laughs> uh, so Paul Gould in his lovely book uh, Cultural Apologetics which I uh, indirectly referenced earlier and I talk about in this review article he highlights uh, three longings of the human soul uh, the longings for truth and goodness and beauty and what he calls the three prophets or guides or capacities of the human soul reason conscience and the imagination that relate to them so he says reason guides us on the quest for truth the conscience leads us to goodness and the imagination transports us towards beauty so you can kind of slot these spiritual capacities of conscience imagination and reason into our sets of three that i've talked about before uh, nice and, and neatly there where gold begins with these three spiritual capacities of, of longing aimed at the transcendental values well i begin with the three-part analysis of humans as spiritual subjects as spiritual beings uh, where subjects to whom gold's capacities of longing belong and in whom those capacities function as paths potentially at least to this integrating spiritual shalom to use the jewish word of wholeness flourishing peace um, that we uh, uh, aim at uh, if we are to achieve what we are intended to achieve by our creator uh, or they can act as paths to spiritual disintegration if we're um, you know, children of disobedience in the Pauline phrase so this idea of, of integration the way in which your spirituality hopes to pull you together and makes you more whole we become whole in Christ because Christ is whole as we put on Christ we become more whole um, but Gould observes that a godless spirituality leads to spiritual disintegration because basically somewhere along the way there'll be a tension set up by the the, the lack of truth in the spirituality so he says as we embody habits uh, that are motivated by misplaced desire basically idolatry <laughs> our character deforms and our perception of the world changes we become blind and foolish the litany of vices and her spoils blind us to goodness and beauty this is why the wisdom books of the bible talk about you know, fear, fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom So, you, in your 
process of spiritual formation, if you have a false spirituality, in a sense, the more consistently you try to live out a false spirituality, the more disintegrative of your character it will become. The more you internalise a false spirituality, the more it will lead to a vicious disintegration of your character. Whereas if you are internalising a true spirituality, <laughs> that internalisation leads to a virtuous integration of your selfhood in Christ. Uh, so here we just begin to flag up how this sort of we're not just talking about, you know, theoretical philosophical concepts about, oh, you know, truth and goodness and beauty and abstract stuff. Yes, it is, but it has very practical consequences in people's lives. And you can kind of, if we had the time, we could sometimes do conferences about, about this sort of how spirituality reveals itself through culture, looking at the movements of art over the 20th century and the different sort of spiritualities that are being reflected there and thinking about kind of how it feels to live within a non-Christian spirituality, how it feels to try and live in the world whilst telling yourself that life has no meaning or that, well, we're all going to die in the end anyway and that's it. Or, well, there isn't really any difference between goodness and evil. It's just subjective, or beauty is just in the eye of the beholder, or you know if you really believe those things and then commit to internalising them and trying to live them out consistently, the more you do that, the worse things become for you. <laughs> Whereas worship brings wholeness or integrity to the personality of the worshipper, as. Um, I met this uh, guy through a conference I go to in Europe um, from America called Caldoun Suisse. He writes, Worship brings together everything in my life under one united whole. It provides unity to all the diversity of my life. Just in the way in which the university was called the university because it was the idea of there was a unity to all, all these fields of knowledge and that unity was provided by Christian theology, which was the queen of the sciences, the queen of the knowing things. Um, we don't attend universities anymore. We attend diversities, whatever. <laughs> you know, we at attend institutions where, I mean, certainly when I was attending Cardiff back in the day, this was ooh, early, uh, 1990s, uh, I was said I was doing uh, music and English Lit and philosophy and the English Lit department was rife with um, <coughs> uh, a kind of author, the author is dead, uh, postmodern kind of view of things. The idea, you know, our lecturers literally told us that texts don't have any inherent meaning that if the back of a cornflake packet is more meaningful to you than a play by Shakespeare, well then it's more meaningful to you than the play by Shakespeare and that's all that can be said about it. 
<laughs> and uh, we had an end of term, end of first year um, sort of uh, wrap up lecture with several of our lecturers where we can have a sort of Q&A time. And, and I remember asking uh, some pointed questions and, and basically sort of asking, you know, what, why should we bother studying English literature? <laughs> um, uh, and remembering the professor sort of basically saying, well, if you just want to sort of, you know, enjoy reading literature, don't bother studying English. <laughs> um, and I read, a, I read out a quote um, from the end of C.S. Lewis's lectures on the abolition of man, where he talks about the, if you have the idea that you've kind of, you've debunked everything, you've seen through everything, you've seen through the idea that there's a real right and wrong or real truth or it's all just power plays and the kind of postmodern, we reduce everything away, um, then to say that you've seen through everything is the same as not to see anything at all. Um, and just read out this, this paragraph and sort of asked for the professor's response as this as a sort of critique of this postmodern sort of it's all just to do with your individual subjective kind of there is no meaning out there. Um, he asked who wrote that? I was a sucker. I, I told him. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have told him. I, I, I should have said, well, that, that, that doesn't matter. I'd like to Could you respond to the, to the point? Um, what I said was, it was C.S. Lewis. And what he said was, oh, well, C.S. Lewis was writing just after the war when people were looking for a sense of certainty and absolutes. Yeah, and what's that? You know, that's a... Uh, what philosophers call an ad hominem argument, an argument against the person rather than the point that the person's made. It's yeah. an irrelevant point. Um, at, at which point, basically, something broke inside my head and I, I went, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, uh, a professor in the uh, philosophy department had been grumbling to me. I got into a conversation with me about the English department and said, come and study with us in the philosophy department, Pete. We're much more sensible. <laughs> and I did. Um, but you see, which the, the diversity, that inattention between you know, one department that's saying there is no truth and meaning and another department that's, 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 that's committed to, well, you know, either this argument works or it doesn't. <laughs> and how can you have that postmodern English lit department saying texts don't mean anything and have a, you know, next to the science department, which is saying, you, need, you really need to publish your research so that other scientists can find out the truth about the world. <laughs> <Right>? yeah. <laughs> and if you're studying multiple courses, you're being pulled in different directions. That's like trying to inhabit a non-Christian spirituality. <laughs> that's, that's ultimately, that's painful when the rubber hits the road and you put it into practice, or try to, because, um, you know, the road is, is hard, whether you think it is or not. <laughs> yeah, so this stuff really matters. Uh, according to um, Abbot Christopher Jameson, Finding Sanctuary, there was a TV series some years ago about that took a bunch of sort of ordinary folks off the street and put them in a monastery for a, for a week or two. And uh, this abbot was on there and he wrote this, this book about finding sanctuary. 
Um, it says the worship of, of whole life discipleship, you know, worship that isn't worship in the narrow sense of, we're going to have a time of worship now. Oh, you mean we're going to sing some songs? <laughs> uh, offer your lives as living sacrifices kind of worship. Uh, is a matter of the, the conscientious exercise of choice leading to obedient freedom in Christ. In this process, habit, getting used to living that way. Uh, Stratford Caldicott in this uh, Beauty for Truth's Sake on the Reenchantment of Education uh, is a wonderfully uh, a wonderful writer. Uh, read a couple of books on these kind of themes. Talks about virtuous spiritual formation as the, the systematic ordering of the soul or ordering of the personality in pursuit of integrity. Uh, the discipline of a thought by logic and will by virtue. Dallas Willard, back to him, explains this process as a matter of the, having the right vision of reality and goodness, the right intention and decision to become Christ-like, and adequate means to carry out the intention via Christian spiritual disciplines, study, praise, and prayer, and worship, and hospitality, and whatever. He observed that the spiritual disciplines embed the will of Christ into our body, by intention, discipline and grace. I do the things I would do and do not do the things I would not. Reflecting Paul. Uh, integrity is restored to my soul and spreads throughout my life as I grow in grace and knowledge. Uh, you see this uh, in the Colossians quote, uh, of the, the middle there, let the word of Christ. Um, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This, this is Paul saying engage in spiritual disciplines. Teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs. Um, so a couple of uh, quotes from commentaries on the passage, Barnes notes on the Bible. Uh, psalms and hymns were to be regarded as a method of teaching and admonishing. That is, they were to be imbued with truth and to be such as to elevate the mind and withdraw it from error and sin. This is why um, Christian uh, hymns and spiritual songs and so on have historically um, described doctrine and have done more than woo 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 Jesus I love you you're my boyfriend um, which some modern worship songs uh, fall into, not by any means all. And I think things have actually got a lot better in uh, the recent decades, but certainly uh, remembering as I can back to the worship songs of the 1980s, there was a heck of a lot of Jesus is my boyfriend songs. Um, yeah. Cambridge Bible for Schools. Christian hymnody was no mere luxury of devotion, certainly no mere musical pleasure. It was an ordained vehicle of instruction and warning. Particularly, again, in a culture where most people couldn't read or write. <laughs> you learn your stories orally. You, you learn things by singing songs and so on. So really, this is what Paul's talking about. 
uh, spiritual discipline connected to, to learning by singing. Uh, so we end up with this, uh, I love my grid, my grid. Uh, spirituality, if your head, heart, hands, or your assumptions, attitudes, actions, um, we have these spiritual capacities that match up here of our reason, our imagination, our conscience. Um, these things are, are communicated through uh, the classical rhetoric of the, the logos, the argument, the pathos, uh, what kind of moves you, the, the ethos, your, the, the ethical character that you're displaying. Uh, we judge these things and these things are fulfilled by the transcendental values of objective truth and beauty and goodness uh, and they grow from and, and lead us to more of the virtues of faith and hope uh, and love and, and all of these sort of link up and bind up uh, together and uh, offer different ways into the same reality of life in Christ. We can start getting a little bit more practical. <laughs> Phew, you go. Um, Stratford Coldcock talking about systematically orientating our spiritual capacities towards the transcendental values. We so are, are we got these the capacities, we're orientating them towards the, the values. But in a, the Christian scheme, these values come from the, the life of Christ, what Christ is displaying. Christ's own spirituality, Christ's own use of the spiritual capacities, um, and our identification with him. Uh, him in us, um, leading us to not just a sort of a abstract Greek concept of the true, the good, and the beautiful, but th the truth of God that is displayed in Christ con concretely, uh, the beauty of God displayed in Christ. You know, when he said, I am the good shepherd. The word translated as good is the Greek word Kalos, which literally means something like the beautiful good, the attractive. The Greeks had uh, another word that meant, uh, you could translate as good, uh, agathos. Uh, that means sort of um, useful, good for, or morally good. Uh, Jesus doesn't say I'm the morally good shepherd. He says I'm the attractive shepherd. Uh, if you're a sheep and you're out in the field, you want me as your shepherd. <laughs> um, you want to follow me. <laughs> I'm giving you an attractive way of life here. Um, and the goodness of God displayed in Christ. You know, we have, our eyes have beheld the, gl the glory of Christ, full of truth and goodness. Um, so there's this sort of concrete instantiation, incarnation. And... We do this so that we grow in Christ-like faith and hope and love. So again, it's bringing all of these back to its rootedness in, in Christ. And that means engaging in 
Christian community and study and worship and creativity and hospitality and prayer and giving and, and, and so on. Um, not that the doing of these as works in order to earn salvation is what's on the table here. <laughs> Back to where we started from. But that these are the the kind of organic fruit of the life of Christ in us as we're in him. Now, so that ties everything up together, sort of conceptually, and starts us thinking concretely in terms of Christ and concretely in terms of what. So what do we do to help us follow Christ? What habits do we develop? And we're not developing these things at all in a Pharisee kind of sense of you know, I've got to approach Christianity as a set of to-do lists or um, measure my my sort of worth by how many things have I chipped, checked off the spiritual to-do, you know, that would go, be, go back to trying to live by the law but rather than seeing these as you know, I want to do these things because by doing them I get closer to that wholeness that's offered to me in Christ that attracted me to him in the first place <laughs> um, we can start asking really concrete quite tough questions like um, okay so how will I spend my money how will I spend my time how will I make my life decisions How does that match up with those those threes? Uh, you know, what is a good, loving way for me to handle my finances? What is a, a beautiful, hope-filled, hope-bringing way for me to spend my time? Um, how am I going to make decisions? in line with the truth of the gospel that express my faith in Christ when I when it comes to what job offer am I going to accept um, am I going to say yes to being someone's boyfriend or girlfriend etc um, etc et do this as we engage in Christian community and start worshiping creativity and hospitality and all of these great things. Um, they they organically come from and lead us back to Christ, uh, so that He will become all in all. Yeah. 
So having got to there, reflections, and can can you start putting your fingers on some of the ways that this might connect beyond connecting with your own spiritual walk, but also connecting into because you're you're engaged in processes of of discipleship with people at a variety, a wide variety of uh, age ranges and things, but they are all people made in the image of God. They do all have these capacities, you know. Ten-year-olds can be thrilled by the goodness and beauty and truth of the Gospel and the Bible and Christ and, uh, and so on at an appropriate level for them. Um, They will, as was saying, as you get slightly older age, start asking questions. And how do we do church in such a way that we don't say, you know, don't feel we have to get into, oh, you know, stop asking questions, don't question things because I've got to get through my allotted material that I need to teach you that you've got to learn in the set of Bible studies that we're working through. But actually, actually, you might derive more benefit from me giving you space to actually ask some tough questions and and how can I support you in actually thinking that's a good thing to do because then you can go in pursuit of good answers to those questions that might actually bolster your faith and give you a firmer foundation when you get to university and someone says uh, come to this nightclub with me and have another vodka and do you want to sleep with me and 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 um, rather than going oh well, yeah yeah that's you know what I was told these stories you know basically adults I, I, was, I was invited to do a, a sermon in a church in Cardiff a few years ago uh, and they gave me the children's slot as well and I went oh the children's slot. Excellent. So, said to the kids, have, kids, have you noticed the way the adults basically use Bible stories in Sunday school? They basically use Bible stories in Sunday school as a way of teaching you to be nice to your brother and sister. Teaching you to be, you know, to share with your friends and to not cause trouble. And I told them about the story of, of Jesus when he was a boy, getting lost from his parents when they visited Jerusalem and, and then finding him in the temple where he was like pestering the adults with questions, <laughs> asking them questions. I said, so, okay, okay, so here's a Bible story. I, as an adult, want you to, to emulate, want you to you know, follow this story. This means you, when you think of a question, you, know, you gotta ask adults your questions. Pester them for an answer. I bet that really endeared me, endeared me to the Sunday school staff. But um, hopefully it did. <laughs> would that it would. <laughs> um, but I fear in many churches that it wouldn't. <laughs> you see, but, but you see what sort of squelching that and sort of turning the gospel into remember these nice bits of the bible that we that we can share share with you at a pg certificate level 
and don't ask questions, just believe, whilst we bring you up in the safety of a nice Christian community where you come to Christian Bible study youth groups and you come to Christian pizza parties and we do something special at Halloween so you can come into the church and not be polluted by the evils of the way that the world does ha Halloween and we protect you and keep you safe and then say out to university, bye! <laughs> As sheep amongst wolves and then we wonder at the number of our youth who don't come back as Christians. <laughs> it's like, well, they get, uh, I think it's Jay Warner Wallace who says, you know, our youth get argued out of being Christians because they were never argued into it. <laughs> uh, so many things have big consequences and, and I'm, I'm kind of, yeah. I'm passionate about sharing these things with younger folks such as yourselves uh, because I kind of look back on the education that I had within church circles of the youth and thinking I kind of I wish someone had told me these things earlier <laughs> uh, I wish I'd had a, a richer concept of what the gospel was and what the Christian life was given to me uh, and sort of a more of an idea of well, how do you actually do it rather than it all being about, yeah, you know, once a week I go to church and get a sermon about how you're saved by faith and how Jesus loves you and will forgive your sins so you can go to heaven. Make sure you've all signed on the dotted line, everyone. If you all believe the right things, yes, right out into the world. Ugh, yeah. It, you know, yes, but not enough. Not enough. Doesn't cut the mustard. Um, so I'm still rambling because I wanted to give you a bit of time to think uh, of some answers to the questions that I was posing to you. But do please feedback before we run out of time. <laughs> yeah. I think the thing that struck me most is that quote from uh, Peter Chris Creek mm. of um, working out of gratitude, not to get into heaven, but mm. yeah. well. Yeah. And I think for me that's what a lot of clarity is to how we can answer those questions. Of, how oh, will that spend my money? Instead of like, oh, how should I be doing this? It's more of a, God, you provided, you've given us this. Of course I'll spend it. Yeah. For your good. Of course I'll give it to the people that you asked me to give it to you. And the time is that, like, God gives us one time we need. Of course we're going to do it. Yes. Doing all those yeah. things out of the place of it is, as you say, about the uh, how can I let my attitude of thankfulness to God overflow into how I'm using my money at the moment? Am I really using it in a thankful way? And if I look at it like that, does it strike me that I should spend it a bit differently? <laughs> That's. Like, Doing this out of place of gratitude rather than arguing you know, yeah. the time. Yeah, that's right. Spending this chunk of your time on volunteering. Yeah, that's what I say. It's, 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 you know, the, the danger is you, you turn this into a pharisaical rule keeping exercise. You kind of say, okay, uh, I need to adopt the, uh, the Christian, um, um, I've forgotten the word, my name's gone. 
brain's gone blank because I'm getting old, uh, way of doing things, these spiritual disciplines, that's the word, uh, and I construct my sort of monastic rule of life, uh, and I'm going to spend this amount of time every day, and I'd like, I go through every week crossing off that I've done what's on the timetable, and therefore I'm being spiritual. <laughs> and again, that's, that's just like, we, you believe? Oh, great, you know, you, you, you do? Uh, if these things are connecting up together, if they're coming from this, this place of thankfulness towards what you've beheld of the glory of the Lord in Christ, <laughs> then it becomes an exciting, wow, engaging in like volunteering for stuff can make me more like Jesus and spread the kingdom and bring wholeness to, well, myself and other people and what can I volunteer for? <laughs> yeah, and that's a, that's a whole different way of approaching it. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a really important because, like, sometimes I've been in situations where I'm like, I am not feeling this, mm. but why is everyone else feeling it? And then I feel like I have to be like feeling it. But then yeah. Not that, that mm. yeah yeah feeling is often like the last thing and the most variable thing about us and, and so affected by our brain chemistry and our mood and what we've happened to eat that day and I know if you're approaching it in terms of you know I've, I've got this this um, this story about Christ that I'm committed to. I've got these these beliefs. I've got these um, uh, these assumptions that I'm going to live by, uh, and I'm committed to Christ. Um, and you say, "Well, I don't feel like X, but I'm going to do it because that's the faithful thing to do." And then when you do it, it probably changes how you feel. <laughs> and, and you go, oh, I was, I was glad I actually went to that or behaved like that. Uh, that, that I can see that actually worked. That changed out, you know. <laughs> uh, and then you become thankful. Uh, and then you, you kind of, you can draw on that next time. You go, well, I don't feel like doing it, but I know, you know, last time I didn't feel like... <laughs> X, Y, or Z, but that seemed to work out okay. You know, Jesus saying this is the way to do things is, you know, turned out trustworthy so far, so I'll give it another go. <laughs> and you develop your <laughs> uh, faith. And you can, you know, the Bible talks about ha having joy, the way in which Christian joy is kind of entirely compatible with feeling depressed. Because joy is not about feeling great, it's about sort of uh, an inner sense of, 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 of knowing of having of you know that peace my, my peace I give you not in the way that the world gives peace but, but a, a peace and in a hope that gets you through the tough times uh, that, what, that is what makes the tough times livable with because of the hope. Not that everything in your life is a bed of roses that's making you go whoopee. 
you're a Christian. I'm really enjoying being thrown to these lions in the arena. Please nibble on my left leg. <laughs> you know, of course not. <laughs> um, but, yeah, when, when confronted by the, the Romans saying, you know, will you worship the emperor? St. Ignatius said, no, because Jesus is Lord. Please transport me to Rome and throw me to the lions because I will rise with him. <laughs> I've got hope <laughs> in, in what's true and it's, you're not it, mate, Emperor, you know. Uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, you know, yeah. So, uh, and uh, Paul and Silas in prison singing songs to the Lord because, you know, I'm sure they weren't enjoying being in prison as it were, but they were like, well, okay, but. It's like the whole faith thing is like, like you were saying, like, you don't always feel it, but it's, it's really faith, isn't it? Like you, you might not feel it at the time, but yeah. you have to. If you think about it again, in, in the relationship terms of the faith in terms of trust or allegiance, think of you know, a marriage. Yeah, yeah. Or just, you know, commitment to being exclusive boyfriend or girlfriend with someone. That, it, it's, that does not mean that you're not going to see other people that you think, oh, they're fit. Or, you know, actually, I'm quite tempted to have an affair with that person. And there's opportunities arise in life, you know, and so on. So you, you might not be feeling it, but if you've got a, a commitment yeah. and an integrity and so on, you turn down that opportunity. <laughs> And then later on, you go, oh, phew, I didn't ruin my marriage. Yeah. yeah. yeah? <laughs> I'm so glad, you know. <laughs> because what kind of person do I become if I become the kind of person who always is willing to give up whatever I've got for the grass might be greener on the other side? You're kind of saying, yeah, the grass might be greener on the other side, and I'll stick with that and, until and unless I find some other grass that's better. Yeah. <laughs> And then you will never have yeah. the value of the stable, yeah. loving, long-term relationship. Yeah. yeah. Uh, same with, with loving Christ. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, well I, I, I don't know if you have any reflections, but I'll leave you with the reflection of... of how this ties into the youth work, the work with older people, etc., uh, etc. Et um, perhaps it poses some challenging questions to how we tend to do things sometimes in church, or tend to um, treat people in certain categories as okay. You're in the category of I tell you stories and I give you fun so that you stay in church, or. <laughs> Whatever, and perhaps people can 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 deal with a little bit more. Um, and certainly, you know, think back to your own youth and kind of what do you feel you could have coped with, could have done with knowing and grasping and being enthused by a little bit earlier than than anybody has given it to you thus far. <laughs> uh, yeah.
bit more holistically. Grad, do you feel like I've been pouring a bath into a glass? <laughs> but uh, thank you very much. Thank you for, for sticking with it. The recordings will be shared at the very least and um, some extra readings come around and I, I hope it will percolate and be of some continuing help and encouragement uh, to you. Thanks. Thank you very much for, for having me and for, for sharing so openly with with the group as well that's grand thank you i feel like with a lot of stuff that i need to like process yeah that will like click when i've had a couple days i think it really helps that you've also like recorded it as well so that when we can go back yeah like listen to it slowly like yeah. play a bit and then you can think about that bit yeah. And, yeah and then you like have a bit of time to think about it and then you go back into it and stuff. Yeah. but thank you very much pleasure talking which let's turn this off